Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center, making long-term recovery a reality for patients like Cassie, who now supports others struggling with the disease. You can see Cassie's story and learn more at bmcaddiction.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When a book comes across your desk called The End of Sex, you tend to take a second look. This particular book is by Henry Greeley, a law professor at Stanford who doesn't actually argue that we're going to stop having sex, but that sex for reproduction's sake, that may be in its twilight years. And to be fair, it had a very good run. But the 21st century could mark the end of humans having kids the old-fashioned way. Hank Greeley is the author of The End of Sex and the Future of Human Reproduction. Hank, welcome. Thank you for having me on. So uh, let's talk about this idea of the end of sex, at least for, you know, reproduction purposes. To a lot of people, I think that's going to sound totally fantastical. What kind of timeline are you thinking about? So I make a bold prediction in the book that in 20 to 40 years, Most babies born to people with good health coverage anywhere in the world will not have been conceived in bed or in the backseat of a car, but will have been (laughs) conceived in a clinic. And the reason they'll do that is to make a bunch of embryos, in the book I use 100 as a rough estimate, do a whole genome sequence, look at all the DNA of each of those 100 embryos, and then pick the one they want most, Hmm. mainly the one they hope will be healthiest. Hmm. And we should say that to some degree, um, the idea of like having a baby in a lab, that's not the stuff of science fiction. Uh, That's already happening. Like if you have undergone in vitro fertilization, if you know somebody who has, it wasn't sex that allowed them to have a kid. It was a lab. Right. And that's actually one and a half percent of all the babies born in the U.S. in any given year are the result of in vitro fertilization. Hmm. Plus, you've got another uh, number, and we don't know quite how big this is, but probably another 1% or so, who are the result of artificial insemination, Mm -hmm. which, again, is not exactly the old-fashioned way of Mm -hmm. sex. Mm -hmm. So it's not new, but I think it's going to go from about 2 to 3% of births to over 50% of births in, as I say, 20 to 40 years. Hmm. In some ways, it feels like, you know, people talked about the sexual revolution in the 60s and in, and and that the introduction of the pill allowed people to move from having sex largely for reproduction to having sex sometimes for reproduction. And, and I feel like this is the end of it, you know, having sex almost never for reproduction. Having sex frequently, but almost never for reproduction, right, I right, think, right. is where the future is likely to go. right. So right now, we have the capability of determining all sorts of things, uh, rare genetic diseases like Huntington's disease or the existence of mutations like um, the BRCA1 and 2 genes that increase your risk for breast cancer. So why isn't everybody right now uh, testing for those things? Two reasons, cost and inconvenience. So the cost of doing whole genome sequencing, of looking for all of these different genes, is still pretty high. Mm -hmm. Uh, To do it at a rate of accuracy that you'd be comfortable making medical decisions Mm -hmm. from is maybe five to $6,000. Now, it used to be half a billion dollars 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. and it was $50,000 eight years ago. So it's now down to about $5,000. That's going to get lower. So it'll get be cheaper to test 
not just for one or two things or five or six things, but to test for everything that your genome can tell you about that embryo, Hmm. whether it's diseases, whether it's cosmetic traits, whether it's a little bit of information about future behavior, and whether it's a boy or a girl. Hmm. But the other problem, and I think the more serious rate-limiting issue here, is that to do pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, you've got to do in vitro fertilization. Because you have to have that embryo at day somewhere between three and six, so you can take some cells off of it and test them. If you get pregnant the old-fashioned way, if you conceive the old-fashioned way, at day three through six, that embryo is halfway down one of the two fallopian tubes. Good luck finding it. Mm. So you need IVF in order to know where the embryo is, in order to be able to test it. And IVF is a pain. Yeah. It's expensive. It's literally painful. Right. I mean, I, I know people have been through it, and it's yeah. literally a very unpleasant thing to do. So I got to say, this is one of those areas where life is deeply unfair. It's not so unpleasant for the guy. Mm-hmm. Providing a sperm sample, usually not unpleasant or risky. But for the woman, uh, what you have to go through to ripen lots of eggs and then mm-hmm. have them harvested is weeks and weeks of shots, mood swings, cramps. And there's even some physical risk. About half of 1% of women who go through IVF, who go through egg harvest, egg retrieval in any given year, end up hospitalized as a result. Mm-hmm. And it's expensive and usually not covered by insurance. So all those things, since you have to do IVF in order to do this pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, that's going to hold back pre-implantation genetic diagnosis until sometime in the next 20 to 40 years. The second big technological change my book foresees comes through. One is cheap whole genome sequencing, but the second one is making eggs and sperm when necessary from skin cells. Hmm. We can take skin cells and turn them into what are called induced pluripotent stem cells. They're kind of like those human embryonic stem cells, which have been so famous and controversial, but they're not made from embryos. They're made from living people's skin And then you can try to turn those into brain cells, kidney cells, liver cells, heart cells, and eggs and sperm. Okay, so is what you're saying that people are going to be able to go into a lab, your two, you know, partners in this relationship who want to have a kid, you're going to be able to go into a lab, and they're going to be able to scrape some skin cells off of you and turn it into egg or sperm? It, they won't scrape it so much. They'll do a two-millimeter punch biopsy. They'll take a little circular bit of your skin out, so small that you just need a Band-Aid okay. to cover it up. And if you were a mouse, we could do this today. It's already been done in mice, both with eggs and sperm. No one has taken it that far with humans yet. People haven't made fully mature eggs or sperm from humans, but they're moving in that direction. And when do you think that this is going to be feasible and we're going to be able to do this? Sometime, in, well, it depends on, on how much effort is put behind it and mm-hmm. also on what countries' regulatory schemes look like. Right. I think scientifically you could probably get there with humans within the next five to ten years. Huh. I also think, and I deeply believe this, It'll take another 10 years of safety testing Mm -hmm. because you really want to make sure that making eggs this way leads to healthy babies. If you rush into a way of making eggs that turns out to make 10% of the babies seriously disabled, that's an awful thing. Mm -hmm. So 
One reason I set my prediction 20 to 40 years into the future was because I think it'll take at least a decade or more of safety testing before anyone should be willing to try this and before the FDA or any FDA equivalent in other countries should be willing to approve it. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Hank Greeley, a professor of law at Stanford and the author of The End of Sex and the Future of Human Reproduction. So let's get into some of the potential controversies here. Um, You talked about the expense attached to, like, genome sequencing. Obviously, we've seen that come way down from millions of dollars to, you know, well under $10,000 now. Are you worried that even if the cost comes down to $1,000 to $500, that we are entering into a world where you've got this sort of bifurcation? People who are like, yep, I've got, I saved up my $1,000 to get my test, and I'm going to be really careful here, and I want to make sure that my child is optimized to, you know, be successful. And people who don't have the money or just sort of don't think about things in that way and and just have sex and they have children a different way. And then you slowly kind of bifurcate these two groups of people. I think that is a real and important concern. Maybe the biggest concern about this is its effects on fairness between different human groups. On the other hand, and this is really important, this is embryo selection. This is picking one out of 100 embryos that two people make. Mm -hmm. All you can get from an embryo from two people is what those two people have to give it. We're not talking about super babies or designer babies here. We don't even know what genetic variations exist for super babies. We know a lot of genetic variations that cause very low intelligence. We don't know anything about variations that cause higher than average intelligence. So the babies will be healthier. They're not going to be a different species. They'll be my guess is 10 to 15% healthier. Adding that onto the already health differentials between rich babies and poor babies would be a bad thing. But it's not going to be a speciation event. We're not going to turn into two different human species. However, I am an optimist. I think people will be rational enough that ultimately, not at the very beginning, but after a few years, this will be free for parents. Hmm. And I don't actually think that's going to be because everyone says, well, for reasons of equity and fairness and justice, we need to make it free. I think there'll be a much more compelling reason. It's going to make health care cheaper. When people, when we get to the point where people are routinely having embryos tested before uh, they're implanted and they're not, you know, having kids the old-fashioned way, what are the ethical issues that you worry about, that you think might arise, be they political, religious, whatever they are, what sort of gets in the back of your head and, and won't won't go away? So let me give two answers to that. The five categories of issues I thought were important enough to cover in depth in the book were safety, which is a real ethical issue, not just a medical issue. It's unethical to do unsafe things, especially to babies who never consented to it. It's fairness. We've touched a little bit on the economic fairness, Mm -hmm. but what happens if too many parents want boys and not enough want girls? There are fairness issues there. And what happens, and to me this may be the actual hardest question, what about fairness to people who already have been born with genetic diseases or people who are among the few who are born with them in the future? 
if you've got, say, Down syndrome, and there aren't very many more Down syndrome babies being born, Mm -hmm. that affects how much research is going into Mm -hmm. your condition and how Mm -hmm. many doctors know how to help you Mm -hmm. and how much social support you have, Mm -hmm. as well as telling you the society thinks you probably shouldn't have been born. I think those disability issues are huge. I think there are big issues of coercion. Should governments, insurers, mothers-in-law, fathers-in-law, husbands be able to force decisions? There are big issues about family structure. I mean, the gay and lesbian genetic parents are only one small part of it. If you could make eggs from a 50-year-old woman, you could make eggs from an 80-year-old woman, you could make eggs from an 8-year-old girl, you could make eggs from an 8-week-old embryo, Mm -hmm. or from a woman who's been dead for eight years, whose cells were carefully frozen. Mm -hmm. You can get some very strange family structures then. Plus, even in a a more conventional family structure, how does it change things when parents say, hey, I picked you because your genes look like you're going to be a great NFL quarterback, Mm -hmm. and you say you want to be a poet? Already, <laughs> you know, parents put the expectations on kids. The plan has already been kids. written. Sorry. Right. But the last of the five, so safety, fairness, coercion, family structure, family issues. The last one I think is politically the most important, although intellectually I don't find it very powerful. And that's just um, it's not natural. It's not what God intended. Right. It's not the way we've done always done things. Yeah, so, so there's a, a religious version of it, which is that's playing God, and there's a more secular version of it that that's not natural. Mm-hmm. I think that will be very strong with a lot of people. And even in 50 years, I don't think every couple will want to make their babies this way. Mm-hmm. Some will either for religious purposes, philosophical purposes, romantic purposes, and it's so much more romantic to just roll the dice. Or because they're teenagers and getting pregnant in the backseat of cars is what they do. <laughs> Not everybody is going to do this. Um, and I'm okay with that. But I do think there will be political opposition to it today. I suspect in most countries, well, I think it will vary. How powerful that opposition will be will vary from country to country. Hmm. In East Asia, I don't think it will be very strong. In the United States, I think there will be some of it, particularly in some more conservative states. But overall, we'll let parents do what they want to do to get healthier babies. Hmm. Um, The Vatican City, not likely to legalize this anytime soon. Hmm. So there'll be a lot of variation. But I think the main argument won't be the arguments I I take most seriously, the safety, the uh, fairness, the coercion arguments. It'll be these arguments about naturalness. And I just have to say, there's nothing particularly natural about you and me talking to each other 2,500 miles apart (laughs) and then having it broadcast to people all over the world on radio and on the Internet. There's not much about our lives that's natural. Or, you know, getting a hip replacement or something. I mean, that wouldn't have happened a thousand years ago. Or wearing glasses Mm -hmm. uh, to improve your vision. Mm -hmm. So you got to say more than it's not natural because there are damn few humans out of the 7.3 billion of us who live natural lives. Even agriculture isn't really natural. Since your timeline is, you know, 40 years in the future that you think, you know, people are going to be sort of having babies in labs, why should people now, who that's not part of their lives, that's not how they're going to have their children— Why should they care about this right now? Sometime in the next 20 to 40 years, this is going to happen. 
It's going to change how we have babies. It's going to change the world that all of us live in. It's not necessarily going to change my life because I may well not be here then, but it'll change the lives of my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, the children of my friends and relatives. It's important, and I do the work I do in the hopes that if we think about and worry about the implications of new technologies early enough and well enough, we are less likely to create catastrophes. I used to say we could maximize the benefits and minimize the harms, and I realized that was way too optimistic. Hmm. But I do think if we talk about it, we argue about it, we debate it, we study it, we're less likely to have catastrophic failures and avoiding a few catastrophes, particularly when it comes to how we have babies, is, I think, a worthwhile goal. Hank Greeley is the author of The End of Sex and the Future of Human Reproduction. He's also the director of the Center for Law and the Biosciences at Stanford. Hank, thanks so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. We've got more of Hank Greeley's work on our website, innovationhub.org, and more about what can be tested for right now in embryos. Greeley says that he believes that many of the political stumbling blocks to the widespread use of labs to make babies may not turn out to be quite the stumbling blocks that you'd assume. As the technology is refined, he says, it will likely first be approved for couples who are infertile. And once it's out there, doctors can deploy it for a much broader range of people. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. And from Destination Medical Center, fueling innovation, talent, and community in Rochester, Minnesota, home to Mayo Clinic. Learn more at dmc.mn. On a fall day in 2008, when John McCain was running hard against Barack Obama for president, there was an unusual back and forth that got a lot of attention. It was in Minnesota. It was at a town hall that McCain was using to criticize Obama's proposed policies. And a woman stood up and she said she was worried. I can't trust Obama. I, I, I have read about him and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. The woman's assertion that Obama was an Arab got a lot of attention for two reasons. First, for the way that Senator McCain handled it. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. He's a, he's, a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues. And that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank you. The other reason that that moment got a lot of attention was that many in the crowd booed McCain for refuting the woman. So the senator's reaction seemed to indicate that the woman had fringe views, but the crowd's reaction seemed to indicate that the views may not have been so fringe. But how do you know what a fringe view is and how do fringe views muscle their way into the mainstream? Is it a fringe view, for example, that we should raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour? Is it a fringe view to think that we should pull our troops out of Iraq and Afghanistan? Is it a fringe view to want to cut back on immigration? 
Leonardo Burstein is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Chicago, and he just happened to be doing an experiment on fringe views during the 2016 election. Now, obviously, this was an election that turned out to be a lot more explosive than he had ever imagined. And he watched a country transforming before his eyes. Because remember, we're talking about a campaign that got started, at least for the future president, this way. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're sending people that have lots of problems. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. But I speak to border guards, and they tell us what we're getting. That was Donald Trump announcing for president back in 2015. And a lot of people shook their heads when they heard that. And they thought, these are fringe views. They are fringe enough to sink any campaign before it gets off the ground. Obviously, that was wrong. So Trump's ideas either were not fringe when he said them, or as people warmed to them or they warmed to him, they became less fringe. And how that happened was something that Leonardo Bernstein was watching in real time. He's one of the authors of the paper From Extreme to Mainstream, How Social Norms Unravel. And he says, consider this possibility. What if you've been told your whole life it's not okay to be xenophobic, to be scared of, or to feel negatively about people from other places? And that's what everyone around you has also been told. So I I stay quiet, right? In the closet, so to speak, right? So I don't learn that there are other people who share the same views because no one is expressing them, right? So you can stay in this situation for a long time because everybody's sort of afraid of trying out and saying, expressing those things because they're afraid of the way they're going to be judged by society, right? So what happens throughout the campaign, and that's what we're trying to investigate, is that you have a candidate who's just out there saying those things, expressing those views, and then you see it say, well, I was, just, I was convinced that this was a very fringe Uh, opinion. And now I see this guy on TV saying that perhaps it's not as fringe as I thought. So Burstein and his colleagues designed an experiment that went like this. A couple of weeks before the election, a group of Americans in deep red states where Trump was going to have no trouble winning, they were told, you'll get a cash reward if the researchers can make a contribution on your behalf to an anti-immigration organization. But what we did is that for half of the participants, we told them that their decision would be completely anonymous. And to half of the participants, we told them, if you make this donation, uh, you might be contacted by someone from the research team to see if there is any wedge, right? Any difference in the likelihood of donating the money. So was there a wedge between people who felt like they were taking actions in private and people who thought that what they did might go public? Yes. Just over 50 percent of the people who thought that the donation would be anonymous gave money to the anti-immigration organization. But if they believed they might have to talk to somebody about it, that number dropped from 50% to 30%. People were worried that they were going to be judged. And when they thought that they'd be given sideways glances, lots of them decided, I'm not going to do it. But I should mention here, there was one more group that we haven't talked about. Like everyone else, this group lived in a deep red state. They were also offered money to donate to an anti-immigration group. And like everyone else, some in this group were told, you can do this anonymously. Others were told, your decision might go public. But the difference was this. All of these folks were reminded of something. Candidate Trump, who by that point had expressed a lot of skepticism and concern about immigrants, candidate Trump is super popular in your state, 
and he's probably going to win. And that, just that reminder, made a huge difference. So instead of having something like 50% donating in private and 30% donating public, you have 50% in private and 50% in public. That difference, that wedge, that reflected some embarrassment, some discomfort, publicly expressing this xenophobic action, is no longer there. For that chunk of people, the chunk that was reminded how popular Trump was in the communities around them, the embarrassment or the concern about donating to an anti-immigration group, that just went away. An idea that might have seemed fringe suddenly got mainstreamed. Burstein did not expect to see social norms changing during his experiment, but he did. The interesting thing about norms is because norms, you know, is this how I think people are going to judge me for expressing a view for acting a certain way. And it's what people think other people will think. So we document that in some cases, and there, are, there have been other uh, cases of this phenomenon where people might be wrong about what they think others think, you know, especially when society is changing at a fast pace. For example, if, if people are changing their views about gay marriage, it's very hard for you to have a, a good sense of what other people think because society is changing its view about a topic and it's sometimes hard for people to have this a precise sense of, of this change. So, you know, you might, you might end up uh, having very fast changes when people realize uh, that other people have indeed moved on in their opinions, right? It, this could be toward a, a more progressive uh, viewpoint, or it could be, like, like as we observe now, some types of beliefs that we thought were long gone, perhaps were there under the rug uh, in the closet, and now they're just uh, uh, resurfacing. So one of the really interesting things that your research speaks to on, on how fringe ideas become mainstream is what is the power of a leader? And I think there's kind of two views, often amongst people who don't like President Trump. One is that much as we've been talking about, look, you know, he's sort of spreading these views that are xenophobic. But another view is, you know, maybe he's you know not somebody that we like, but what he's really doing is holding up a mirror to who we already were before he came along. Because after all, if he was saying things that were completely unpopular, he never would have been elected. What do you think about uh, the power or the not power of a leader in terms of being able to shape the people that he leads? That's a great question. I, my, my take on this is that one thing that Donald Trump seems to have done based on our research is really what you say, this idea of the mirror, mm -hmm. right? Which right. is having a leader, someone like uh, a candidate, endorse a set of ideas really helps people learn about how popular these ideas are. Mm -hmm. When you have an official person, an official leader adopting a position, the position sort of becomes institutionalized. You know, it's, it's just like, okay, right. that's that's an official right. position from the government. Right. It's not fringe at all. It's, right. it's, it's not it's, a guy on the soapbox in the park. It's a really important person in an important position. And that, as you say, it, it uh, institutionalizes it in some way. Absolutely. And even people who perhaps were afraid that other people might still judge them, yeah, it becomes easier for them to adopt this position. Say, well, it's not like I really think that, but, you know, that's the official position of my country. You know, I follow the rules and so on. So it also, I mean, might even provide some excuse for people to adopt this view. One more thing that you may be wondering about since this poll was conducted only in deep red states that were basically slam dunks for candidate Trump. Did his language affect liberals at all? 
Well, Leonardo Burstein tested that. He focused on folks who generally liked Hillary Clinton and did not like people making anti-immigrant statements. And he told this group, look, a few years back, Swiss voters voted against the building of minarets, which are towers that mosques use to call people to prayer. And then he paired these liberals with Swiss voters, and he asked them to play a classic game in economics. And we told them, hey, here's $3. You can keep all all for you, or you can decide how much to give to this person in Switzerland. Okay, so it's it, they decide how to split the money. And to some people, we said, hey, this is a Swiss person that you're playing with, 24-year-old male, how much you would like to give to them? You know, so they would give about a third on average. To some others, we said, uh, hey, this is a 24-year-old person from Switzerland who actually supports the ban on minarets, okay? And then you see the donation rates go down substantially. So these participants are not very happy with the Swiss person. Then Burstein told the liberal Americans, just so you know, when the Swiss people had that vote on whether to ban minarets a few years back, the ban passed overwhelmingly. It got 57% of the vote. So what we see is that when you tell this extra piece of information, they don't judge that Swiss person very negatively anymore. They just, donation rates go up again. Say, okay, I, I'll give them a pass if I know that he's in a social environment where this view is popular. Okay, so I, because I know that that person might have reasons to express that, might have strategic reasons even to behave in this way. And that... Burstein says is how a fringe idea becomes mainstream. Leonardo Burstein is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Chicago, and he's a co-author of the paper From Extreme to Mainstream, How Social Norms Unravel. We will have a link to his paper at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. And now to an idea that was once fringe, but in many cities at least has gone mainstream, charter schools. We got a lot of feedback on our segment last week about charter schools. Some of you loved it, and some of you didn't. The segment featured David Osborne, a former aide to Vice President Al Gore, and Chester Finn, a former Assistant Secretary of Education in the Reagan administration, who have both studied charter schools, and both are mostly proponents of charters. One of our listeners had this to say, I'm a public school teacher in Chicago, a city where the charter movement is gaining strength but facing a lot of opposition from the Chicago Teachers Union. I was a little bit disappointed that both of the guests you had on your program were proponents of charter schools. Another wrote that a Supreme Court ruling on unions will make all schools charter schools and this ruse will finally be laid bare. Some of you had articles that you wanted us to read, so we've created a place on our website for a bunch of data and different perspectives on charter schools. We will have recent polling on who does and who does not support charters and where support is falling. We will look at President Obama's legacy on charters and what President Trump's Department of Education may be planning. Plus, we'll link to an article from Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, on why, in her view, charter schools are hurting public schools and a response to her article from Stanford researchers. We always love hearing from you on Facebook, on Twitter, by email, so keep the feedback coming. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. 
we often think of the most innovative people as oddballs, people who are marching to their own drummer. And if you're looking for a man who exemplifies that, try 15th century Italy. He's uh, illegitimate. He's gay. He's left-handed. He's somewhat heretical. He's all these things that they tolerate quite well in Florence in the 1470s, which is so very lucky for him. And when it came to being different, for Leonardo da Vinci, that was only the beginning. You know, he dresses as a bit of a dandy. He's incredibly good-looking. As a young man, he wears purple and pink tunics and shorter skirts than the normal uh, wear in uh, Florence at the time. And by being comfortable with being a misfit, a rebel, and somebody who's a little bit different, I think that made Leonardo innovative. Walter Isaacson has spent decades writing about people who, to borrow a phrase from Steve Jobs, thought differently. Ben Franklin, Albert Einstein, even Steve Jobs himself. Isaacson's most recent book is another journey into a great creative mind. This time, it's Leonardo da Vinci's. Isaacson says that Americans have always loved experimenters and fiddlers and people who are outside the box, and that our founding fathers were inspired by figures like da Vinci. That's in America's DNA, to always be looking for the facts and be willing to test your theories against facts and revise your theories if the facts come in differently. Somehow, in some ways... We're losing that right now. And that's why Leonardo, or for that matter, Ben Franklin, could be an inspiration. I asked Isaacson, what made Leonardo Leonardo? What made him curious? What compelled him to understand and to always be testing the world around him? Well, with Leonardo da Vinci, it's because having been born out of wedlock... That was a great asset to him because, hmm. first of all, he doesn't have to become a notary like his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. Secondly, he's not sent to one of the classical schools or universities there where you get received wisdom from the medieval scholastics. So he became—he had a bit of a chip in his shoulder about that at <laughs> first, which was he called himself a man without letters, untaught. He had to teach himself, he said. Hmm. But he became a disciple of experience and experiment. And so he's not somebody with some superhuman processing power like Isaac Newton or or Einstein that mm-hmm. we could say uh, we'll never be that way. Right. He just pushed himself by making to-do lists of what he wanted to learn to be more curious. Right. He would write things like, you know, why is the sky blue? And he would observe things like whether birds flap their wings upwards faster than they go downward, discover different species do it in different ways. And he loved looking at how water flowed into a pond or in a bowl and why it made swirls. These are things you and I and all of us can do if we just learn from Leonardo a little bit and pause and say, what am I curious about? Uh, One of my favorites on his list, after all the things he wants to learn, the measurement of Milan, he wants to ask somebody, how would you find the size of the sun? And then he says, describe the tongue of the woodpecker. You know, who would wake up oh, one sure. morning and Your say— Oh, sure. Your typical question. <laughs> yeah, who would wake up one morning and say, I need to know what the tongue of— But, you know, how would you even find out? You know, right. find a woodpecker, right. open his mouth. But Leonardo <laughs> wanted to know. And it wasn't to paint a bird, and it wasn't, you know, to do a flying machine. It was because he was Leonardo. Right. He just wanted to learn everything. 
and by seeing the, cro- the patterns that cross different subjects in nature, not being siloed into disciplines the way we make our kids or our universities do things, uh, he was able to see, you know, curving and swirling patterns across nature, even found out that the tongue of the woodpecker is a pretty interesting topic. Hmm. Well, and the way you describe it, too, is that, you know, he wasn't necessarily he wasn't a university trained kind of guy, but he was like on a perpetual sort of internship where he was asking locksmiths, like, how do you how do you change these locks? And, you know, he was always asking the experts in the field. And I don't mean like the experts in the academy, but just people who did things. How do you do those things? Well, you know, in Florence and then in Milan, where he goes when he's in his late 20s, he's a very collegial guy. He loves having friends who are around him who are smarter than he is and know more, Mm -hmm. so he can always question them. And this is one of the true lessons of innovation, is that it's a team sport. Even when he's doing Vitruvian Man, he's learning the proportions of man from reading some books like Vitruvius, but also from uh, two or three friends who design churches or architects, and a friend who's an anatomist who dissects human corpses. So and Leonardo I should say Vitruvian Man is the is the guy with his arms out and his legs out. That really, really famous. You in know, the almost looking like square. exactly in a circle in the square. Yeah, exactly. spread eagle naked in the circle in the square. And the cool thing about that drawing, to me, the greatest drawing, because it's iconic of the connection of art and science and spirituality, but the cool thing about that drawing is that he spent a lot of time perfecting anatomical measurements so he would get it scientifically right. Then he made it of almost unnecessary beauty. And more importantly, it's himself. That's a (laughs) self-portrait of him naked, looking, you know, with a wonderful curling hair he had. And it's him standing in the earth, in the universe, saying, how do I fit in? Mm. And to me, because it was for church designs, you wanted to have a, a church that fit the proportions of a human. It's how do we fit in, not only to our world, but to the entire creation. Hmm. Um, You described da Vinci as having, like, all these little notebooks that he carried with him. You know, I think you said he attached them to his belt sometimes. They were just everywhere. Why did he carry these notebooks all over the place? Well, taking notes on paper is another lesson we should learn from Leonardo. Because 500 years later, I could wander around from Venice to Windsor Castle to Bill Gates' home near Seattle and see those notebooks hmm. because paper's a great um, information storage technology. Right. You don't have to worry about figuring out the operating system after right. 500 years, unlike our tweets and Facebook posts, which will certainly not be available, fortunately, in 500 years. And so Leonardo decided that every day he was going to take notes on paper. And fortunately, paper was a bit expensive, so he crammed everything he could onto a page. And so he would do sketches of a table that he might use for the Last Supper. But then he would do a craggy warrior, but it would dissolve into some mountain ranges. And then it would be triangles because he wanted to do the geometry of mountains. And then how triangles can fit into circles because he loved the transformation of shapes. And Mm -hmm. on one of those pages that has all of that, he even has how to make a hair dye out of boiling nuts and oil 
and make blonde hair dye because, you know, there he was in his 30s. Because why not? He's looking pretty good, but he doesn't want to go gray. So you see a mind dancing with nature across different disciplines on every one of the 7,000 or so pages we still have of his notebooks. And to me, that became the foundation. Other people have written about Leonardo based on the 12 or so painting masterpieces Mm -hmm. he did. But I wanted to say, let's go day by day and look at those lists, not only the shopping list of what he was going to buy for dinner, (laughs) but to describe the tongue of the woodpecker and why is the sky blue type questions Mm -hmm. and the little doodles he did that were preparatory drawings for his um, great paintings. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Walter Isaacson, the author of the new book, Leonardo da Vinci. Um, one thing that was, da Vinci was really interested in was flying. And I, he, I mean, he was really interested in trying to figure out how do humans fly? You, you know, can we make a contraption that would allow this to happen? Why was he so interested in flying? And obviously way before, you know, we actually ever went up in a plane. One of the things I learned from the notebook that really surprised me and hasn't really been written about much before is his interest in flying contraptions began when he was producing theatrical performances and plays and pageants both in Florence and then for the Duke of Milan when he runs away and goes to Milan because that was his main job when he was young is all these spectacles and theater shows. But the cool thing about Leonardo, and this is what we got to make sure our children keep doing, is he blurs the line between fantasy and real observation Mm -hmm. and engineering. Mm -hmm. So after doing that for the theater, he gets interested in real flying machines. Mm -hmm. And he tries to do the impossible, which is build a machine that's totally human-powered, where you can just flap flap the wings and fly away like a bird, And he realized after a while you couldn't do it that simply. But another lesson is, you know, try something that's impossible and then learn why it is impossible. He ended up making great gliders and some pretty interesting drawings for all sorts of uh, human-powered flying devices. So it seems like uh, from what you're talking about in terms of experiments and this kind of systematic way of trying to make progress, that in some ways da Vinci was like a link in the chain from medieval thinking to what was going to come, the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution. And I mean, he predated all that, but it seems like he's foreshadowing it. You're exactly right, Cara. He is a forerunner of the scientific revolution. In fact, when he has something he wants to try to figure out, he devises an experiment. For example, he figures out how the heart valve works because he loves swirling water. He realizes it's not the pressure of the blood that opens and shuts the valve, but when it goes from a larger to a smaller ventricle, it swirls and it pulls the valve outward. But he said, let me test it. So he builds a little glass chamber and he puts little grass seeds in it so he can see the swirls Hmm. of the water. And he even does something that's key to the scientific revolution that came 100 or 150 years later, which is he does various experiments changing some of the variables. In other words, he'll try it five or six different ways to make sure that it wasn't just a fluke, his experiment. So this is the beginning of the scientific revolution, and it really happens with this guy who tries to be an engineer, 
but also understand by experiment the principles of nature. Did he ever worry that sort of looking at the mechanics of invention either took some of the mystery away of it for him, probably not, but but more importantly, might raise the ire of religious figures? I mean, I think of like 100 years later, uh, obviously Galileo was going to get in a whole bunch of trouble. Mm-hmm. Did this ever clash with the way, I mean, here he is like kind of dissecting bodies and really thinking about how things work. And in some way, that's taking away maybe from this sort of eternal mystery of it all. Like any great innovator, he had no qualms about questioning authority. (laughs) He loved to sort of question things. So take for example, that's why he was considered a bit heretical, although Mm. he didn't think of himself that way. For example, he loves fossils, and he realizes that the stratification of rocks near the Arno River in Florence. He even discovers trace fossils, which means not fossils of, uh, of creatures, but of the traces they left in the earth. So he knows they must have been alive. And he looks at all the layers, and what does he conclude? That the biblical flood is just a myth. And Uh-oh. he writes that, and he doesn't mind doing it. And you know what? It's Florence. He's right. <laughs> more tolerated than poor Galileo a hundred years later. Mm. Likewise, he looks at the fetus and the womb and figures out, can it breathe? Does it have food? Is it viable? Does that mean it has a soul or not? Mm-hmm. Boy, you talk about a modern argument. Right, That's right. one he wrestled with. So he did not mind. And the good thing about the church then was um, the popes were doing such uh, outlandish things at that point anyway. And Some of them were Medici popes, and some of them were like parents of Caesar Borgia. Uh, They were a little bit more lax. uh, And so you have a flourishing of questioning and skepticism of science without it seeming like you have to excommunicate people for it. Um, Leonardo was not, however, we should say, without some... I don't know if you want to call them failings, but it seems like one of them was procrastination. Um, At one point, you say he uh, created this needle grinding machine for the textile industry, and he thought, like, this is going to make me rich. So obviously, he did care a little bit about uh, about material wealth, Um, but he, like, didn't follow through with it. So what what was going on with da Vinci and procrastination? That's one of the key uh, sort of character traits of Leonardo that uh, we have to wrestle with. There's a whole group of paintings, Adoration of the Magi, St. Jerome in the Wilderness, that he doesn't finish. They're machines, like the needle-grinding machine that probably could have made him a lot of money, that once he's got it designed, you know, he doesn't really execute on it. There are treatises he writes on optics, on anatomy, on art, on uh, shade and light uh, that he never really publishes. At one point when he was doing the Last Supper, he was famous then. He'd go into the church and rush in, then stand there for long periods of time and finally do one brushstroke and then leave. And people gathered to watch him. And the Duke finally said, you know, you're procrastinating, basically. The Duke says, you know, why are you taking so long? He says, sometimes... People work the best when they seem to be working the least. (laughs) They're able to gather all of the information, Mm -hmm. they let it marinate, and it gels into some great intuition. 
So he does teach us to procrastinate, although he does it in a very Leonardo da Vinci way, which is to make sure he's got all the information and he's letting it marinate well. We've talked about this to some degree, um, but is there like a a takeaway that you think is important for people today um, from da Vinci? So, you know, some lesson that he teaches us. I think he teaches us a wealth of lessons. I end the book with a whole uh, section on them. But if you're going to pick one, one word, it's curiosity. This is a person who was deeply, playfully, passionately, and sometimes obsessively curious about everything, not just things that would be useful, but things he was curious about for curiosity's sake. I call it the tongue of the woodpecker phenomenon. (laughs) Anybody who's going to be curious about that will be curious about everything. And even at the end of the book, I don't want to spoil it. Yep, no, it's true. There's an appendix about the tongue of the woodpecker for all the people who are really wondering. And I say, it's not going to be that helpful to you to know this. (laughs) It's not useful to you and it wasn't useful to Leonardo. But I think that maybe after reading about Leonardo, people will want to know just out of curiosity pure curiosity. Walter Isaacson is the author most recently of Leonardo da Vinci. He's also been CEO of the Aspen Institute, chairman of CNN, and editor of Time Magazine. Walter, thank you so much for your time. Cara, I really love being on your show. Thanks to the people whose curiosity guides this program every week. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also have production help from Sarah Frazier and Kaya Williams. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe. And from Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. PRI Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1.